Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Well, hello, listeners. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. We are very, very excited right now. Very, very excited. As it is a very, 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 very special occasion for us. Tonight, we are celebrating 200 episodes of the Feel and Pill podcast, and to keep the trend going... From when we celebrated 100 episodes by covering the Toy Story trilogy, we are going to be going through the awesome Indiana Jones trilogy. Yes, I said trilogy. Over the next three days. So what better way to thank you all for us listening to us all of these years than to give you more content on great films that we know you love, right? That's our aim, and we do hope that you will enjoy these conversations as much as we expect to enjoy having them. But before we get into our Raiders of the Ark review, we wanted to do a little bit of a celebration here. This is the 200th episode or part one of the 200th episode, and we had some amazing messages sent to us from fellow podcasters who we've collaborated with and some others that we've listened to for years, some that have listened to us for years, and also some of our listeners, some of you actually wrote in, and we just wanted to share some of these messages. More than anything, they make us feel good, right, Patrick? I mean, they confirm why we do what we do. This is probably, next to doing the actual conversation, the highlight of podcasting for me is getting that kind of feedback from our listeners and supporters, I would say around the world, since I've seen some downloads coming as far over as uh, India and Asia. But yeah, it's a highlight for me to hear this kind of feedback. Me as well. And so we're going to read a couple messages and then we're going to play some for you and then we will get to the actual episode. The first message comes from Dave Courtney. Dave is a joy to have in the Feel and Film Facebook group. If you are not a member of there, we always encourage you to become one. But Dave shares pretty much every review he writes. He is a prolific writer, a prolific user of Letterboxd. And he has some great opinions. He really digs deep and he likes mostly everything. We like to mess with him about that. But he is definitely on the positive side, which is what we like to be, too. So uh, we were glad to hear from Dave. Dave said this. He said, not sure if this is too late, but I figured I would try and buck my procrastinitis and take a shot. I discovered Feelin' Film as part of a converted and intentional effort to atone for the loss of my physical film community. I can still remember my first episode, Smurfs The Lost Village. What struck me about that episode was that you were like-minded individuals who believed in positive over negative and emotion over technical merit. Case in point, you weren't extremely high on the animated Smurfs, but the episode still managed to give me fair reason to try it out, and it turns out that I loved it. This podcast episode led me to subscribing, which led to joining the online community in the Facebook group, which led to so many wonderful things like my introduction to Letterboxd, a working film community, more reliable podcast listens to keep my bus rides and walks company, New Year's resolutions, and great discussion. My world has not been the same since, so it's fair to say that you've been life-changing. It definitely played a big role in renewing my love for film and giving me a safe place to grow in that with other like-minded individuals through joy and, at times, 
or through frustration. Thanks for letting me be involved and for all the work you do. I don't take any of it for granted. Dave, you're going to bring tears to my eyes. You're welcome. And this is amazing to hear. Thank you, because this is what it's all about. We love getting on the mic and talking about movies, but we would do this with or without people listening. The fact that anyone listens and gets something out of it is a huge, amazing bonus. And the Facebook group, we talk about it so much, everyone, because it is a community. Dave used that word several times in his message to us here, and that's how we think of it. We are encouraged by the group of people that has have come to there and, and use that as a safe spot to come and chat about movies and try to focus mostly on their positive views. And so I think that's even more than all of the 200 episodes may be our most crowning achievement or something that we're most proud of, I would say, is kind of getting that Facebook group off the ground. Um, and we're glad that Dave is acknowledging that it's an awesome place to be. So Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that's probably the biggest compliment that we can receive is having a group that doesn't have to necessarily be admin all the time, that doesn't have to feel like we're on notice because somebody says something that's going to offend somebody. Look, the fact is movies in and of themselves are subjective, and that's great. They're supposed to be. It's art. But having a community that respects each other, that values the opinions of one another, even though those opinions are different, the goal of the group is to just have that discussion and maybe find common ground. That's the bonus there. Matt Fletcher is one of those guys that I think feels that same way. And he writes this. He says, what has feeling film meant to me? Kind of a big question, honestly. I've, al- I've always loved watching film, any kind, sappy rom-com, award-winning drama, even the Transformers franchise. So it's been a little isolating in my life when my family and immediate peers only see a very limited number of movies every year. And it's just been very validating finding a group of like-minded individuals who share in the same passions as I do. I think that's a sentiment anyone who is active in the discussion group has. And the greatest strength of the group that I have noticed is the amount of mutual respect everyone has for one another, even when their viewpoints differ. This simple little podcast has helped me find a special community of people. It's even extended past film into other interests like video games and sports. I just hope that future discussions in the group lead me to even more friends. Also, favorite episode, when I trolled, campaigned Aaron for over a year to cover Starship Troopers. That one is on me, guys. Apologies. Well, no worries there, Matt, because we actually enjoyed the heck out of Starship Troopers, and we were glad to finally get to cover it. And your absolute determination in getting that episode covered was something to behold. You did campaign, and it was awesome to watch happen and much like star not much like starship much like shawshank redemption it failed quite a few times before finally making the cut and so there you go listeners if you are determined and passionate enough you can probably get us to cover just about anything and there are various means to do that so thank you matt for your message it means the world to us and we're so glad that you have found a place that you love just as much as we do Last up, we're just going to play some voicemails, like I said, from other uh, contributors, and we hope that you enjoy these as much as we did. Hey, Aaron, Patch, the rest of the team, and all of the listeners of Feel and Film. While you guys are always talking about the emotional side of things in cinema, we over here at Next Best Picture are usually talking about the technicals. And I've always found that contrast to be so interesting between us because it allows for our podcast, I find, to work in perfect harmony for both of our intended audience members. 
and they are able to get a full spectrum of what a movie has to offer from both of our shows. You guys have been great friends, great collaborators, and a vital voice within this space. Congratulations on behalf of the entire Next Best Picture team on your 200th episode. We hope for another 200 more and another 2,000 if you can manage it. Best of luck as always. This is Mandaglia with Next Best Picture. Hey, Aaron and Patrick. This is Reed. And this is Nathan. And we're with the Fear of God podcast, and we just want to say a hearty congratulations to you on 200 episodes. 200. 200. That's a lot. That's a lot of episodes. That is, uh, that is substantial. We're, we're nipping at your heels. We're not there yet, but we are, you know, we're closing in close behind you. Uh, I know how hard it is to, uh, we both do how hard it is to put out so much great content every week. So uh, thank you guys so much for putting a consistently positive spin on film criticism. Uh, your voices are needed out there in the world, and congratulations for all the great work you do. Congratulations, guys. Here's to the next 200. G'day, Pat and Aaron. It's Daniel and Dean here from the IMDb Journey podcast. G'day, boys. Just want to give you a quick shout-out and a happy 200th episode of Feel and Film. 200. That is impressive. And what's even more impressive is how much I just get so emotional thinking about 200 episodes with you guys. It's a takeover. I mean, how do you top that? (laughs) (laughs) No, it really, truly is an achievement, and we couldn't be more proud of you. Nah, in all seriousness, well done, fellas. You've, uh, You've done beautifully, and we're ever so proud of you. And here's to the next 200. Hey, Aaron and Patch. Mike One and also Mike here from Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I think we love your show because, to be honest, we tend to struggle with our emotions. Yeah, we wanted to thank you guys for feeling your film. It makes us feel ours. We also have trouble expressing our emotions. Uh, I feel mine better after listening to them feel theirs. Yeah, their stick has already gone too far. It's only a short promo, Mike. Everybody feels their own. That's the point of the show. We have to end this. Uh, I want to be on you. I want to be on you. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We are fans, albeit weird fans. Thanks for 200 great episodes of Feel and Film, guys. Let's all feel our... Yo, 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 what up? It's your boy, Kobe Mac, host of the Kobe Told Me Podcast. And shout out to 200 episodes to Feel in the Film. My boys, Aaron and Patch, doing the damn thing. In week out, man, yo, here's the 200 more. Um, 200 more dope conversations and deep film analysis that tries to push past just the technical elements and the objective stuff that can get in the way of storytelling and taking it a film. You guys have been instrumental along my journey, and I wouldn't be where I am without y'all being a part of my daily and weekly digest of uh, film commentary. And I thank you guys so much. If you can't tell I'm a fan, I really, really am. I look forward to more collaborations more fun, and more feeling film. So once again, here's to a big shout out to 200 and to 200 more. And when they ask you where you heard it from, tell them Kobe told me on behalf of the Feeling Film Podcast. Peace. Hey guys, it's JD from the In Session Film Podcast and congratulations on 200 episodes. I'm very happy, very proud of you guys. I love the work that you guys are doing. I might've mentioned this to you before, But my favorite thing about what you guys do is that you look at it from that emotional perspective, um, looking at your feelings, how a film moves you, uh, which is one of my favorite things to do with film as well. And maybe we don't always see eye to eye on things. We don't always agree, but uh, I certainly respect what you guys have to say. I love 
your optimism. I love how you guys typically look at things uh, with the glass half full. And in the the world that we live in, we need more of that. Um, and I admire it. You guys not only offer that, but you stir great conversation, whether it be on Facebook or Twitter or wherever. Um, it's always engaging um, to be a part of everything that you guys are doing, uh, whether it be in, an, in a discussion group or just listening to your show each and every week. I'm very, very happy for you guys. Um, and here is to 200 more episodes. Okay, and now that we will wipe the tears away from our eyes, we can get started and dig into our episode for the day. This is your obligatory spoiler warning. We are going to spoil Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know who hasn't seen this movie, Patrick. I don't know that I've ever met anyone other than my children until I showed it to them, but adults who hasn't seen this. Have you ever met anybody that hasn't seen this movie? If I have, we're not friends anymore. Smart man. Smart man. You either, you're either not friends or they immediately watched it to rectify their crimes. Yes. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen it, honestly, please seek it out. Uh, it's a very, very special movie and we'll talk about why, of course, but we're going to do so with spoiling it and you need to experience it on your own. So this is a great time. Uh, if you're just finding out about this for the first time and you haven't seen us promoting it on social media beforehand, we will be going through the trilogy, dropping these episodes in the next three days. Go rent it. Go check it out. If you can't listen right now, watch them all and then come back and enjoy these conversations because I think they're going to be very insightful and a lot of fun. All right, Patrick. Well, one word takeaway time. I know this was probably difficult because... When we come upon a movie that we both truly, truly love from the bottom depths of our heart, we can want to have many one more takeaways. So I'm really curious which one you settled on. It was down to four. And down to four. <laughs> down to four. Okay. Yeah. This is like your top five. That was really like a top 15, you know, when we do those. Oh, um, darn. <laughs> Genius, smart, excitement, investigation. These were big words that I was trying to really kind of wrap up how I felt about this movie. And I settled on excitement, not only because of the excitement that I remember having when I first saw this movie, but the excitement that we get from the characters, Indiana Jones, uh, doing these adventures. Everything about him as a character feels very... Uh, adventurous, obviously, but he's a guy who doesn't seem like he's bored. Like this is something he has to do. I mean, he thrives off of this, but the movie as a whole is one that I don't feel like ever gives us a chance to not love a piece of it and not be excited about what's coming up next. We are in a conversation that's making us laugh and giving us great information. Then all of a sudden we're in a fight scene and then we're jumping off planes and we're shooting people and having people try to shoot at us. I say us, us being indie, but it's like start to finish. It's a, an indie car race. You don't know if pun intended, some, I guess. Yeah. No pun intended on that one. So wow. Yay on me. So five, five, I look at, I look at a movie like this and just cannot stop thinking about how excited I get with every viewing, knowing what's coming and knowing what I'm going to experience as I go through it. I think Steven Spielberg is masterful at this with 
um, not only this one, but the entire trilogy. And the thing is, is that it really, really stands out in Raiders, maybe because it's the first of three, but it's something that I don't think we've ever experienced before if we hadn't seen it, and one that we love to revisit because of all the excitement that he brings into it. Couldn't agree more with all of that. I echo everything you just said. My one word takeaway that I settled on, I tried to go as like big and broad as I possibly could because like you, I wanted to kind of encompass this whole swath of feelings that I have about this movie. And so I settled on legendary because for me and many others, Indiana Jones just defines the ideal adventurer. He's charismatic. He's tough. He's clever. He's brilliant. He's sexy. And yet he is amazingly human and underpowered. And he appears here in what I feel is the greatest adventure movie of all time. And I think that it sets the standard for which all other treasure hunting and exploration stories in all forms of media strive for. There are so many iconic scenes, and that actually was considered for my one word takeaway, iconic, and phrases in this film too. It features tomb raiding, a globe-trotting chase, gunfights, fistfights, romance, friendship, supernatural artifacts, and more. He's got his whip. He's got his hat. There's the boulder escape, the melty face. It's all the stuff of movie legend that everyone can immediately reference when these things are brought up. And it created in me a fan of this kind of stories that has defined one of my favorite genres and has lasted a lifetime. So legendary for me, it is. That's perfect. I would unofficially steal that. Hey, we can agree on this one and just, you know, share one more time. Yes. And we, we steal things like Indy does. You know, absolutely. It's for the greater good. It is. That, He's not that word's, that word's going to go in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> if we're anything like, like Indy, it's going to go in a museum. I'd, I'd rather it be in a museum than one of many things in a box in a warehouse somewhere. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, as we're kicking off this series to celebrate the 200th episode, uh, and real quick disclaimer, this is 200.1, But before anyone out there decides to correct me on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else, lest they desire to do so, we do know that this is not kind of like officially the 200th. Like we've done other episodes. We've done mini-sodes before that previously used to be labeled as mini-sodes. And so they were actually usually full length anyway. And so we've really done more than 200 podcasts, but... For the main line of movies that we've covered, we're calling this 200. We've got to have some way to track that, and this is the best way to do it. So, um, I think it would be best for us to kind of start by just discussing why we chose this trilogy without like going too much into the other two movies, but more of a broad overlook, and what it has meant to us over the years. So do you want to kick that off? Yeah, I sure can. As I mentioned, this is one of the first movies I remember seeing in the theater. Um, it came out in 81, but I guess it was re-released because that would have been when I was two years old and I don't think Good I would memory. remember that. But I think it was the first movie I remember falling in love with because of all of the action and young patch didn't really know how great this was. He just remembers all of these different scenes that you had alluded to where people are getting shot at. People's faces are melting off. People's heads are exploding. There's snakes, there's fire, there's a plane and there's lots of blood. 
not Tarantino blood, but there's lots of blood. And I want to say that I was maybe eight or nine when I first got exposed to it. My parents, my dad particularly wanted me to watch this. And, you know, I'm not going to say I forgive him because, you know, this is probably a little too much for my young nine-year-old pure eyes. But the thing is, Aaron, this set a tone for what I wanted from my action adventure movies. Indiana Jones set the standard for who I wanted to watch on the big screen. And Harrison Ford, as, a, as an actor, he put together something that was pretty fantastic. I think he was the first actor to be in t- two simultaneous blockbuster trilogies between Star Wars and Indiana Jones, which I think is a is a major milestone. I don't know that other actors have been able to do that, um, at least they, not in the 80s. He was very much the Tom Cruise of the 80s in terms of his charisma, in terms of his ability to do his own stunts. All these things, of course, I didn't know at the time. But looking back on it, it's not even that Raiders and even the other two just hold up. It's that they set the standard still. There are things about it that feel like they're original. They feel like, oh, this pioneered these four things in later movies. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like I'm watching like a Kurosawa movie that inspired a bunch of stuff before it, and I didn't really care for the Kurosawa original. This is one where I watch, I enjoy, and then I think about, man, I'm glad this existed, because if it didn't, it would make me really question what kind of action-adventure movies we would have gotten in the late 80s, early 90s, and really the action-adventure movies that have been inspired by Mission Impossible being an example of that where you have a charismatic lead, a great supporting cast around him, a serviceable plot, which, by the way, is Raiders is more than serviceable. It's a fantastic plot. We'll get into that. And a, a legendary type of family of stories that really never get old. They don't feel dated, even though there are things from the special effects side that might. There's enough about it on the practical side that just makes it feel fresh to me every time I see it and then possibly to younger audiences. I have a friend of mine that I work with. He's in his 20s, and we're trying to expose him to older movies. Raiders is going to probably be the next one that we have him watch. He hasn't seen it yet. I would probably defriend people who haven't seen it, but I'm making an exception for this guy because he works for me and because he's willing. So <laughs> at this point, that's fair. I, I want him to experience it as, as soon as possible and, and hopefully experience the other two as well. Yeah, this agreed on all that as well. I mean, it's been a defining series for me and it ushered in not only a love of movies like this, which, you know, amazingly, there really hasn't been an equal to Raiders yet, in my personal opinion. That's part of what makes it so legendary, is that it inspired an incredible genre of imitators, but never have any been able to surpass it. I would love for them to, don't get me wrong, uh, because that would mean the movie is like like top 10, top 15 of all time for me, probably. But I love the stories that we get to learn about in movies like Raiders. I love the mythology and the artifacts and this blending of supernatural and real reality, things like using the Nazis. Uh, I mean, that's a big part of this one, right? He's fighting Nazis, which will always be fun to watch. Um, and, you know, in other movies, he's fighting cults. And, and then it's just 
it's always very relatable stuff. Not that I fought the Nazis myself, but things that we would absolutely want to cheer for. And I will probably mention it more than once, but specifically with regards to video games that I have fallen in love with, my two of my favorite series of all times are the Tomb Raider series of games and the Uncharted series of games. Uncharted, which you're currently working your way through. And without Indiana Jones, we don't get Laura Croft and we don't get Nathan Drake. And these two characters have meant so much to me, almost as much as Indiana Jones. And so I'm just grateful for that and for the legacy that Harrison Ford was able to kick off. I mean, it really is fantastically amazing that this man could be Indiana Jones and Han Solo and Deckard in like a span of like three or four years. Like this man in the 80s is, like you said, the Tom Cruise of that era, if not even more so. And I think as he gets older and officially finally retires, retires and stops making cameos and stuff, we will start to appreciate Harrison Ford's career even more than we already do as a whole. And not just in, not just for those specific roles. Like we tend to get excited about them from a fandom perspective, but I think we'll start to appreciate how versatile he was overall. And so I just, I really respect this trilogy. Um, again, trilogy, <laughs> especially if we're using the word respect. And I am so glad that we're going to talk about it as a multiple film franchise. This one does seem to do something different than a lot that has come after it. And that is, it has three movies with self-contained stories. So the character progresses in time and transfers between them. But the connectedness of the quest that he's on is never really there, right? It's just like, oh, later in Indy's life, he went through this thing. How does that affect the franchise for you? Does it make it better? Does it make it worse? How did that, how do you feel about that way of storytelling versus what we see in the world building? Everything's got to be a universe these days. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air for me. It reminds me a lot of the serialized TV that we, that we see. Um, Barry's a great example in that. I'm sorry, not Barry. Barry's a good example of just great television, but there are, there are stories out there that are, built around procedurals where you have a television show that has a crime that's going to be solved or in the case of a hospital, you've got someone who has to have surgery, something crazy, but there are underlying subplots that really tile that together. The unique thing about the Indiana Jones trilogy is that it really centers around Indiana Jones, which is why you have Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Everything centers around him and the adventures that he goes on. Spielberg, I think, is very intentional about these stories and wanting to make them not derivative, generic, but wanting to make them very exciting and wanting him to be the focal point to amplify not only the story itself, but also him as this human character, this guy who's not a superhero who walks around with a dirty leather jacket and old clothes, a whip and a gun and a dirty hat. And by the way, he's also an archeologist professor. You have a lot more emphasis on character and story 
that really are a nice marriage. They really dance together really well because you see how he interacts and how excited he gets about these different adventures. You see how he interacts with different characters throughout. What I really dig about each one of the movies is that there are moments in it where we're hinted at history that we don't know about. Um, there, Pacific Rim does this as well, where we talk about the history of these robots and the gaiji and, and the gaijin and you, excuse me, I didn't say it right. The, the monsters. The kaiju. Kaiju. I keep wondering. <laughs> yes. But we don't get a chance to see all the history, but we don't need to. It kind of piques our curiosity and we trust what we see in the present. Indiana Jones does this really well. There's a lot of talk out there about how Temple of Doom is the weaker of the three. I'm not going to get into any of that right now. We'll talk about it on our next episode. But I would say that maybe one point to that is the fact that we have re- returning characters in The Last Crusade. We have two movies that center around religious quest, bookending something in between that's sandwiched with like this weird kind of voodoo devilish evil type thing. And I, maybe that is why it doesn't feel quite as great as the first and third, but I would argue against that because I think when we talk about the quality of the stories and the quality of the characters, those are still there. That's what's consistent about all three of these. I fell in love with Willie and with Short Round equally as much as I fell in love with Marcus Brody and Sala. But I think what we what we get to is a whole encompassing story that doesn't have to rely on its predecessor to be successful because the success of the movie really does stem from its central character and a creative way to tell a story. I mean, anybody can tell an adventure about a person who goes to look for an artifact and bring it back from the from the bad guy. That's a plot device in a ton of movies. It's how you dress it up. It's how you create a story that's very intriguing. When you add Nazis and religion and really fun special effects, to me, that's what makes Raiders so much fun to watch. And I think that's what spreads throughout Raiders, Doom, and The Last Crusade. Well, I think that for me, part of it is the difference of the three movies. Raiders, you get much more of a traditional, what we've come to learn as the you know usual adventure story with a light supernatural element to it. But it's also kind of like treasure hunting, really. In Temple of Doom, it goes a little bit fantastical with the cultist aspect and a little horror-y. And so you get to kind of play in different genres within the same series. And then with, why am I blanking, Last Crusade, um, we get to a fully different emotional side of a story uh, because of the inclusion of his father, played by Sean Connery. But it comes really to a spiritual place, much more so than in Raiders of the Lost Ark even, because the way that the spiritual aspects are played out are very different. Um, and so it's less like I would say Raiders is more supernatural infused and it's more spiritual infused in Last Crusade. So you get three very distinctly different 
tones, but all with that undercurrent of the same indie adventuring throughout them. It's really special. And I love it because what we do these days is every story seems to be written in these franchises with getting the audience a hook at the end in mind. So that has to be part of the way you tell your story. You have to tease the next thing and you don't get what we would call finality or a a good wrap up to that character story. I can watch Raiders and never have to see anything else that happens to Indiana Jones and be perfectly content knowing that I just saw a piece of this man's life and imagining what other things might be like, but I don't need to know that at the end of Raiders, you know, the next thing that's going to happen is Andy's going to end up in the jungle and it, I don't know, man, it creates a really unique sense of going from movie to movie that is just, it's so different and it's been lost in our current culture. There's a, when you have something like Indiana Jones, your hook is the guy and not necessarily where the big story is going next. That's a great way to put it. And there's, there's a, there's a thing about finality that I think is very appealing to an audience when you feel like wow, I've experienced this story. And it feels refreshing to watch that in today's day and age because when it comes to a franchise, the expectations are it's going to continue because the money's there and because the characters are fun, even if it doesn't have to. But you also expect, particularly in the MCU, which has probably become the most successful film franchise in the last 20 years that what's going to happen next it's a different kind of anticipation and i think that you know back to the future uses that as well where you have a hook at the end because there is an intent that the story is going to have a through line through any number of movies whether it's one uh, two or three typically three in this day and age it's now four especially when we have book adaptations that want to spread that narrative out even further And so Indiana Jones caters to the fact that we want that serialized experience. We want the adventures of Superman and experience that in its own shell, knowing that the next adventure we get, it's probably going to be fun. It's probably going to have crazy stuff in it. But more than anything else, it's going to have the guy or the girl that we've fallen in love with. Those procedural dramas that my wife and I like to watch, like The Good Doctor, we are more concerned about what's going to happen with these characters and how they interact with the medical stuff going on around them more than the actual things that they do from a medical standpoint. We care about the characters. And I think that Indiana Jones kind of pioneered this. Yeah, I mean, I like the fact that you don't necessarily have to watch them in order. So I can watch Temple of Doom, and I don't need to have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark to understand Temple of Doom. I can pick up on who Indy is and what he's all about within that movie and fully understand him. I can largely do the same thing with Last Crusade. The beauty of it is Spielberg's way to like give us those connecting pieces like snakes in Last Crusade that we'll talk about, I'm sure, unfortunately, and how that ties into the snakes in this movie, right? And how Indy has a fear 
that we learn about and we get to see it played on further. But that scene still works just fine, even if you hadn't seen Raiders. And that is just very different. And, and I like what you said. Like, we're not saying one is better than the other. Neither one of us think that. We both love the MCU and the way that the storytelling is done. And we enjoy anticipating the next entry and what's going to come next. I mean, that's a fun thing. But I, I just think that this is special because of it's not doing that. A while back, I was when I was reading comics, there was this great series that came out called The Adventures of Superman. And it was a digital comic that was dedicated to allowing creators to tell Superman stories without being tied to continuity. I love continuity. I love seeing how the history of my favorite superhero comes and goes. But when you have an opportunity to focus on the the mythology of the character and create little adventure stories around him, complete with the underwear, <laughs> what you get is tribute. What you get is a a series of stories where there's an aspect of fun and you don't have to have that history. But you're focusing on being it's it's a very myopic kind of approach, which is a good thing in this case. You when you mentioned that you don't have to watch these in order, there was a long time era where I don't I did not remember what order these were actually in because I grew up really loving Doom. Like Temple of Doom was the was the movie when people would say, hey, what Indiana Jones movie do you like? I'm like, Doom, Doom. I love the heart coming out of me. I'm just sick like that, whatever, and the fire. And I thought that was the first one because I'd seen it so many times. And recently, recently, maybe 10 years ago, I come to find out, oh, that's the second one. I mean, the third one makes more sense because obviously we're, we're dealing with father-son stuff. But you're right. You could watch The Last Crusade and not even know that the other two exist because Spielberg is telling complete stories. He's giving you a little bit of backstory so that you can get kind of hooked on the character. He gives this great kind of exciting opening to all of his movies, all of which feel very different from each other, but all of which you know, ah, Indy's going to get out of this, and he's probably going to end up on a plane or something that flies. (laughs) And uh, I think that Spielberg is really Spielberg is really great at being able to, for the sake of the trilogy, give us those common elements. Because for those of us that love the trilogy as a whole, when we see a new indie adventure coming out, if it were a television series or a new movie, we know that those elements will probably be there. There'll be an exciting open where he's either hunting for something or he's captured by a group of whatever, and he's going to get out. And he's going to get out in a crazy way. And at some point, his whip's going to be involved. We get that with all three of these movies. And I love that. Well, he's managed to stay popular for 18 years now um, since being introduced into the film world. People still love these movies. And again, I don't know anyone who doesn't really enjoy them. Maybe not Temple. Some people have issues with Doom, but those people are wrong. We'll talk about that next uh, episode but anyway what impact do you think that i mean we've talked some about the impact it's had on the action and adventure movies already but what do you think appeals to people maybe about indy as a human being because he is obviously both adventurer and professor how have we latched on to that as an audience that has kept us enjoying these for 18 years strong well the answer is in the question when you have a guy who's not just an adventurer and not just a professor they act mutually exclusive but they're also tied together. There's a reason why he's a pretty great professor 
and he's not too bad to look at according to the girls in this class, but he's incredibly smart. He's got a lot of trust from his students, but there's a reason why. It's because he goes on these adventures. Indiana Jones as a character shows us that someone can be so passionate about something that he's willing to do whatever it takes to preserve that thing that he loves. He is an archaeologist at heart, and I think that he loves the fact that he can teach and hopefully get people motivated, not necessarily go out in, not necessarily to go on these adventures with him, but to be able to help them understand that this isn't just treasure that we're looking for. This is history. There's a humanity that exists with him as a character that a lot of people, myself included, latch on to because I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not an adventurer, but I do love, I am passionate about things and I want other people to understand that. But I think as a character, we relate to him because he is a normal guy. He does use a whip and a gun, but he's not like a ninja. He's not a martial artist. At any given point, he could get shot. He could get stabbed. He could get bitten by a snake. And yes, we know he'll probably survive, but he feels human to us. He feels grounded. And his adventures seem a little crazy. But as we get into those adventures with him, we think, you know what? This makes sense. He's not doing anything out of the ordinary. He's using resources, which I think is pretty fantastic. So it shows how smart he is. It shows how he's an investigator. He's like a, you know, he's like a paleontologist um, who's hunting for dinosaur bones. But he's not just hunting for bones. He's hunting for the history because he's trying to answer that question why. So all those things for me personally create a, a character and a love for a character that I I, I don't. I don't think exists in a lot of movies today. It doesn't for sure. I mean, we, well, we live in superhero culture right now as well. And so it's all about worshiping the godlike or those that have these abilities that we never could that can stand up for the weak because they are the strong. Indy is the weak standing up for the weak. You know, he's, he's essentially, he's so human. Like you said, like he is conceivably someone that any of us could, achieve to be i could learn to use a whip i could use a gun serviceably i could make good decisions and i could learn archaeology right i have always felt that that was a strong appeal to adventures in this genre whether it's indie whether it's again laura croft or nathan drake all of these characters to some extent feel like we could become them and obviously in the video games they become bullet sponges so that part's out of the question but you know what I'm getting at. They just feel like someone you might meet in real life and that they didn't require a mutated gene or something to happen on another planet or some sort of incredible technology to achieve these things, right? They just had that passionate desire to find something. And I, and I also love that Indy is a person who is seeking, you mentioned this earlier, to learn and for knowledge. Like he is not trying to better himself financially. He is not seeking things for selfish reasons necessarily. It's about the discovery and it's about preserving history and those aspects, which 
make him someone that we can absolutely always root for. And he also doesn't make a lot of bad decisions. Like he's not, I wouldn't say necessarily like everything he does is perfectly ethical, but he's a pretty pure character with regards to what he chooses to do and who he chooses to value at different situations that he's put in instead of making the wrong choice and then having to be redeemed. That's not usually a thread in his films. I think what appeals to me alongside that is like Ethan Hunt, he has an entourage. He has people that he's always got helping him out. And that says a lot about his character, not just cinematically, but his actual character, like emotionally speaking, that he realizes he can't do this alone. He doesn't want to do it alone. I mean, even when he's getting ready for the, the trip, he's talking to Marcus Brody and going back to that pure heart, or at least that, that desire to preserve history, he made sure to say, and when that arc's found, it'll go in the museum. It'll, and even the, the statue that he was trying to get from, from Belloc, he said, I had it, Brody, I had it in my hand. I was going to, give that and it was going to be a piece that was going to be great. He's in it for the adventure and for that preservation and not necessarily like how much can I get for this, which I think appeals to the genuine adventure in all of us. I can't speak for Tomb Raider, but as I'm going through the, the Nathan Drake uncharted, I'm finding pieces of that with him where he's definitely motivated by different things. He's not a professor of archeology. span but there there are hints of purity and hints of some ethics where he's trying to do the right thing and also try to survive. I think that is something that Indiana Jones as a character really thrives on is he understands that every adventure, every moment that he's out there with his whip gun jacket and hat is going to be life threatening, but there's, something thrilling to him about that and so i think that's where he gets his motive and that's where his personal gold treasure is is in the adventure itself yeah and he's not he's not for hire that's the thing like he's not for hire he's not an adventurer that is going to the highest bidder to go do the thing he has a purpose and it is serving his friend marcus and a museum that he is tied to and his own adventuring desires he's not just out there doing this thing for someone else's, you know, possibly nefarious purposes, but it gets him an opportunity. You know, it's, he's just, he's, he's a very pure character. Um, you mentioned the arc. What appeals to you about the arc in Raiders? Like what makes the thing that he's after in this movie interesting to you? Well, it's the uniqueness of it. It's the, let's go all out. If we're going to hunt for something, Let's hunt for something that has never been hunted for before. And I say that from someone who has not seen a lot of serialized adventures where this might have been the focal point. But even when you when you think about an adventure, these three in particular, there is something that he's going after, a treasure. But what makes the arc so unique is two things. One, it is real. It is very much something that historically has been documented as existing. And for Indiana Jones, it is just that. It's not a religious piece. There's a fantastic scene where he's talking to these government men 
and we're getting all the exposition about the Ark and how Hitler wants it, and he wants to have all this power. And the way he describes it, you can almost see the fact that he grew up with those Sunday school stories, I think as he called them, but you could tell he doesn't buy into it, that those are just stories. And so when you see the Ark as the focal point and you see his discovery of that, the way in which he respects it, I guess you could say, over the course of the film, he doesn't get religion, but he understands the supernatural impact that it could have because he's read his history. And I think the arc itself speaks equally as much about Indiana Jones and what he sees about archaeology, that it not only needs to be preserved, but it needs to be respected. And it needs to be something that's not used for personal gain. The arc itself, I understood, and Spielberg sets us up in a way where we want to see what's inside of it. I mean, he said it. It's where the original stone tablets that Moses brought down are are stored. And so the moment that we see it open, we're like, okay, what's going to happen here? And then, of course, all hell breaks loose, I think, or maybe heaven or God or something breaks loose. But from Indiana Jones' perspective, that symbol, that thing brings out more information about who he is as an archaeologist and who he is as a person, how he has that ultimate respect. But it is a treasure worth finding. It is almost like the thing. It's almost as if he's like, you know what? This thing has been lost for years and years and years. This isn't a statue. This isn't a gold relic. This is a piece of real history that had huge ramifications to the Hebrew people. And I think for him and for us as an audience, we would love to see what would happen if that were to be discovered. Not if we got our hands on it, but if that were to be discovered. Yeah, I think we would love to like even have the validation of knowing it was real and not just something in a book that we believe and we have faith that existed, right? I love that scene that you were talking about when he's explaining historical things like how to find the Ark of the Covenant in the Well of Souls. I could listen to those all day long, just him being an archaeological expert and professor. It's one of my favorite things about Nathan Drake in the Uncharted series, too, is when you're just running around through the jungle or through the city and he's talking about the things he knows and the things he's seeking and the artifacts. Indy is so good at that. And it's fun to watch the juxtaposition of him as the smart Dr. Jones who has all of this knowledge and then him in the moment as the quick on his feet, um, smart ass adventurer when he needs to be right when he's pushed and when the tension is escalating. But like you, I mean, it's all about the connection of my faith. I think that really does elevate it for you and I, I mean, it, it is something that we have read those stories forever and we believe existed. And so to see it depicted in this way, and I would say to use a pun somewhat faithfully, it's not propped up in a way that is, I think, fake or misused per se. Um, you know, th they take some of the biblical wording about what would happen if you were to look upon the Ark of the Covenant and they really play on the true traditional way that the Hebrews 
took care of the Ark of Covenant, right? It was set aside. It was, you were not able to look at it. So to envision what may or may not have happened if you did, I don't necessarily think that's that far out of line. And when you put someone like the Nazis as searching it, it makes it even more intriguing because you would think, you know, for a race that is so anti-religion in the first place, for them to seek something that is such an important religious relic, not only as an element of power that they're trying to gain, but like as this thing that we uphold as being so important to us from a religious aspect that would be taken away and misused. It just, it really is an amazing, amazing thing for him to be going after. And frankly, it's hard to, been, it's been hard to top that. I mean, the, the indie series, especially with this and Last Crusade, going after the Holy Grail, which had been done, of course, before, um, and in different ways, <laughs> hilarious ones specifically. But, um, you know, that one was not necessarily the first time we ever saw somebody go after the Ark of the Covenant, but I think it's uniqueness. And I don't think anybody's ever really gone after it since because it's sort of set the bar as like, this is what it was. And that's kind of unique and special too. So, it really is fantastic. It just blends just enough of supernatural elements to the reality that the Nazis would actually probably go after something like this in real life to make it fit perfectly. This is what I think Raiders does really well um, among the three is it blends history with theatrics. It allows us to play a little bit with Asking the question, did the Nazis really go after this in 1939? Did this city really exist? Is that staff supposed to be that tall? All these different things. I kept asking myself, what is actually historically true? What is documented? Was this city where the supposed Ark is buried? Is that a real city? Uh, did the Did the Germans have people searching for this? And I almost don't want to know. Because I like the fact that Spielberg is sort of reinventing history, potentially. And he says, we'll take something that people know about, two things, the Ark of the Covenant and Nazis, and let's put them in a setting where one is chasing after the other. And let's see what that does. And then let's throw in this adventurer professor (laughs) in the mix and have him be the one that tries to stop them. And this is what we get. This is Raiders of the Lost Ark, where we have all these parties that are coming together for a central purpose to find this art for completely different motives. And when they collide, it creates chaos. And I love that last scene, not only because it's just crazy to watch, but it really represents the chaos of, and the culmination of that adventure coming to a, a culmination. And to your point, Aaron, it sparks the imagination we almost see Spielberg as a 20 year old or maybe even a teenager thinking, what would it be like if we opened up the arc based on all these stories? And what we get is an interpretation. Now, would somebody else say something different? Absolutely. But the point of that scene is adhering to that central fact that Indy calls could be for us a central piece of faith. Don't look directly at the Ark because of its holy implications, because it 
holds the power of God. And so Spielberg, like Indy, respects that, respects the religious aspect of it without getting overly spiritual. And I think that's a really great thing for a, a wide audience because if Raiders was made today, depending on the creative team behind it, it could easily slant towards an overly spiritual type thing, which could be effective. But I like my action adventures to have that balance of mythos, fact, religion, all these things, because the mystery of all that, I think, is what brings that appeal. And we can bring our own interpretation to that. For you and I, we connect with the spiritual aspect of it. But for somebody else who has no connection with faith, they may connect with the supernatural aspect of it. Yeah. And just in general, I think that it's more interesting to have your antagonist slash villains going after something that they find can be useful to them with regards to power than it is just to be going after something purely for monetary gain to get rich, right? And so that's just an infinitely more interesting story for us to get into. And one of the hallmarks of this, and we can go through some of the specifics now, <laughs> is the opening scene. It usually serves to introduce characters, provide us with a conflict, show us some exciting action to get the audience excited, I'm curious how you feel about the iconic way that Raiders accomplishes this and the introduction that it gives us for Indy and the way it sets up not only this story, but in reality, just the character as a whole for what eventually will come from this whole serialized series. While this isn't my favorite of the three, what it does echoes in the second and third movie. It's big it's ridiculous, but not too ridiculous. And it's all about theatrics. Again, I go back to thinking about how, Steel, how Spielberg is looking at this and saying, what could we throw at Indiana Jones to challenge him to get out of this mess? The big thing about this opening sequence is that discovery, that investigation, that slow walk into the cave or whatever it is. And discovering the different traps that take place it helps to put us in a place where we know indiana jones is smart historically he's probably been doing this for a long time he thinks through things he's not spontaneous he's not impulsive necessarily until he has to be and the people that he's with work in contrast to that one guy in particular who stays with him until he betrays him ends up falling for one of the traps that Indy said, stay out of the light. And you know that he did not. But there are iconic moments and there's the switch of the idol for the bag of sand with that beat that takes place where he thinks he's got it. And then all of a sudden the bag just starts sinking down because he didn't get the weight right. And then the big ball, <laughs> that big ball, I think is one of the most famous scenes that has been replicated any number of times in other movies. UHF specifically comes to mind. It's a way to help set up that Indy goes through a lot of crazy stuff, but it's a lot of fun to watch. and the big set pieces that we get today really 
I think are inspired by these opening sets that we get in Raiders, Doom, and Last Crusade. Raiders, I think, sets it up more than anything because I don't think we've seen we saw that any time before outside of intergalactic type things. This is the first time we get to see kind of an action adventure boots on the ground guy who has crazy things chasing after him, um, snakes coming to get him, arrows being shot at him, and then eventually a guy named Belloc who takes his statue from him. <laughs> yeah, the, the first cave exploration is and will be forever one of my favorite scenes of all time. The entire opening of this, it really starts, I think, with the first shot of Indy. You know, we get the mystery of going through the jungle. The first shot of him is in shadow with him stepping out of the shadow. He's cracking his whip right away. We're getting this iconic, unique tool, right? That is tied to this character that we will forever associate with him. It knocks a gun out of someone's hand. And then we get into the cave and we, we immediately get to adventure immediately. There's not like, a big long build up before we get to see him at his, you know, most explorative. It's right away. And I think it establishes his credibility as an adventurer. We see him in action. We see what he is capable of. And I think that's a great tone setter for the rest of the film. And it also, for me, it sets off like a lifelong love affair of treasure hunting because we get to see what that entails. What would it be like to actually go look for these artifacts? They're not just like something you find with a metal detector out in the middle of the jungle. They are things that have been hidden and protected on purpose by these civilizations that are now gone. You see him having to avoid those terrifying spikes and those needle traps. Those are things that have come into play in games and in movies and storytelling forever. That golden idol, like you said, and the way that indie like has to think about it. I love the scene of him like stroking his face in thought before picking it up. You see immediately like, okay, not only is he adventuring, he's smart. Like he's not just some by the seat of his pants like guy who's just going to run in there, find the thing and run. Like he's thinking it through. And then the themes that I think that this opening scene sets up for him, not only the whip and the use of it throughout the series, but like outrunning the giant boulder and running from the Hovitos. He runs throughout this entire series a lot. It's kind of like Mission Impossible, uh, but to a little bit of a lesser extent than Tom Cruise. But he does. He runs all the time, and usually he is ending up in some sort of transportation, whether it's a plane or a boat or a motorcycle or a horse. And in this one, it's no different. We get to see him running out. And it's awesome. It is all just so absolutely amazing and we also get a theme right away from this opening scene that will carry throughout the series as well which is one of betrayal indy is frequently betrayed first by stipo brilliantly played by alfred molina a much younger alfred molina <laughs> and you know he quickly meets his death as we see him getting his comeuppance for stealing the idol even you know, Belloc, I wouldn't say Belloc necessarily betrays him in the way that others will or have throughout the series, but he is sort of a peer more than he is an opponent. Or, or, or he's not the villain necessarily of the film as much as he is an opponent for Indy to compete against. Um, with regards, he's a, he's a way for us to see 
a different side of treasure hunting, right? He is, he gives us a look at how good and pure indie is by contrasting what someone who would treasure hunt for the money, um, or for the fame kind of type deal would be like. And so all of that, man, all of that is like in this one opening scene and the score as well. Like the score is phenomenal and it is perfect throughout this movie. I think I really noticed it on this last rewatch. It's light and whimsical during scenes like the Cairo chase. It is mysterious when he's in the cave there in the beginning, when he's in the well of souls when you're adventuring, it's got that air of mystery to it. It's emotional and dramatic at times of loss, uh, like when he thinks that Marion has died. And then just the main theme that we've all come to know and love is one of the most unrivaled pieces of music that is tied to a character of all time. Like it is instantly relatable to that character. And on all of that, it comes from this first scene. So I just think it's fantastic. I'll add on the fact that the opening scene also brings with it a, a huge amount of Foley and sound effects, sound editing and sound mixing. This is something I clearly remember about the trilogy is how much emphasis is on the way a punch sounds, which does not sound like a punch at all, by the way. But I remember the sound of it. And I remember a lot of possibly exaggeration, like the way the whip sounds, the way the gun goes off, all these different sound effects are very much still in my head, have always been that way, where I can hear, ah, that's an indie gun going off, or that's Indy's whip, or that's when Indy punches somebody, or when somebody else punches somebody. That opening scene brings with it a lot of that stuff. Not everything, obviously, but it gives us a little tease of what we're going to experience from an oral standpoint. And I think that's really important. We tend to forget about those two categories and the foley that goes into making those sounds work because as a serial adventure, which is what this essentially is and inspired by the old serial adventures that were produced back in the 1930s, there was an over-exaggeration and I, the, the scene itself feels like an over-exaggeration. It's not something that we expect to be real. There are elements are, that are grounded and those are, solidified by Indiana Jones himself, almost everything about that opening scene and everything that takes place after it seems a little bit fantastic. But that's okay, because that opening scene helps set the groundwork for the type of movie we're in for. Had Indy been immediately crushed by the by the boulder, that would have been a short movie, obviously. But the fact that we see him with these close calls and we see him constantly being betrayed and doing all these different things it allows us to be sold on the fact that this is the tone of the movie and that we don't have to have our belief challenged because we can suspend it over the next almost two hours and just enjoy the ride. And and I think that's the mark of what makes an opening scene like this work. Oh, definitely. Definitely, for sure. And I mean, it's funny because in the Facebook group just tonight, there was a thread about what are some of your favorite opening scenes of all time? And I don't even know if this one didn't come up yet. I know there's a whole bunch of comments, but hopefully someone will reference this. And of course, we're recording this early. So if you're listening, don't go look in the Facebook group. This didn't just happen in real time. This is like we're in the past right now. Wait, are we in the past or in the future? I don't know. Hold on. I just don't know. We're in the future. We're in the future. We're talking now in the future. But if you're listening to this, we were in the past. 
we were referencing something in the past while we were in the future. We're time travelers. Yes, which has nothing to do with Indiana Jones. So moving on. Every good adventurer needs help, and Indy has no shortage of friends that assist along the way. And that is something that I also picked up on in this most recent rewatch. Um, Not really anything I paid a lot of attention to in a thematic sense before this, but... You know, we're really intentionally going through this entire series, and I wanted to see if this is something that continues on. I'm excited to rewatch those movies and see how the different friendships he has plays play out. So he has Marcus, he has Sala, he has Marion, of course. I was wondering what you think of the supporting crew around Dr. Jones and the different relationships he has with them and how they inform his character in this adventure specifically. Well, they definitely make him stronger. They establish history that he has. It gives him credibility that he's not just a regional archaeologist or adventurer, that he has ties to many different places. And I think what that does is that allows us as an audience to trust that he's going to be able to get out of pretty much any situation that he's in, no matter what country he's in. He doesn't know other languages. English is his primary and only language. That's actually a detriment at that in the opening scene where, um, where, where Belloc is saying, you know, if you only spoke Huvito, then this would have been a lot easier. But having that team of people that I don't know if he'd call them a team, he would call them probably friends, colleagues, things like that. They all seem to come in at appropriate times to get him to the next step. Uh, Marion is both an exception to the rule and the rule with the nature of their relationship. They have history just like him and Marcus do just like him and he and Sala do. But again, we don't have to know what that history is. We just get an established relationship when he re meets them and we just make the assumption that there's tension between him and Marion because they had some history. Um, he and Brody have been working together for years as professors, but they also have a history trying to get these different artifacts. So more than anything, the team helps him along the way, but it also establishes his world for us in order for us to be able to say, ah, so he's a world traveler. So he has capability to get in and out of situations when he needs to. So these moments where he is just getting out of reach of a falling rock or a door, we know that this is not abnormal for him because he's been in these situations before. Agreed. And I really like the fact that we get subtle relationship building between he and the people in his life. And it's not in your face, like, let's stop and go through 10 minutes of backstory between characters, right? We don't necessarily need a ton of information to understand why Sola would help him. But we learn through their actions how they feel about each other, if that makes sense. So there's not a lot of exposition wasted here. We learn how Marion feels about him because Marion reacts to him. She doesn't stop and say all these long, go on a long diatribe about the past. You know, ultimately we know through very, very brief snippets of information in the script that 
they were involved at one point. Um, there's actually in the script, Marion's age in Raiders was 25 years old, uh, which made her around 15 years old at the time of her affair. And Indy would have been 27. And so they changed it um, back in 2008, I believe. Then they changed her age to 27 at the time of Raiders instead to make her like legal for him. <laughs> but I love that because we have seen him already being swooned on by his students, it's really easiest for us to understand that that probably happened with her. Her dad was an archaeologist as well that he was working with. And so, but we get this in like little bitty snippets. We don't stop and like go through the whole length of the story. And I love that because we learn through her actions how she feels about it and how upset she is. And the same goes for like Sala, who he meets in Cairo and we like you I think you you said it perfectly really he we get the idea that he probably has people he knows like this in many cities right Nathan Drake's the same way and you'll learn that as you get through the rest of the games he knows somebody seemingly everywhere because he's been everywhere and while that's a usual trope in this genre that has come to exist it really helps to facilitate the storytelling and it's believable because we see Indy as a world traveler and someone that easily is approachable and would make friendships with people because he's a good person and he's a friendly person. And so we learn how deep their relationship is when, you know, Sala catches that date that's about to go in his throat. I actually was shocked at that moment this time around. Cause I was like, man, we were literally like an inch or two away from Indiana Jones dying due to a monkey poisoning him with a date. You know what I mean? Like, I had forgotten how close he came in that moment and someone else saves his life. And that establishes this relationship. And for some reason, I'd forgotten that Sala accompanies him like all the way into the well of souls. Like he's there, man. He's there when they find it and they dig it out. And I thought that was really cool this time around. And I think that those characters being a part of this help let us see different sides of Indiana Jones. And so he's not just the brash adventurer who is great at seeking the object. We get to see him in little snippets of like what he's like in romantic relationships without ever stopping to go through a big, long storyline about what happens if Indy tries to settle down. Because that's not the focus of Indiana Jones. That's not the point of Indiana Jones, right? And I just, I think it's really perfectly balanced is what it comes down to. Is Spielberg has a deft hand here and he gives us just enough on the friendship side, just enough on the romantic tension side to add to his character depth overall without ever letting it overtake the purpose and intent of this movie, which is Indiana Jones looking for an artifact and saving everybody in the end. I'd like to believe that Spielberg trusts us as an audience to be able to draw our own conclusions and to enjoy the movie based on those conclusions and what we've seen. A movie letting us fill in the gaps. Oh my gosh. We don't get that a lot anymore, it feels like. Yeah, show us and tell us the apple. Show us or tell us. Don't do both. Well, something else that happens a lot to Indiana Jones in all of his films is close calls. <laughs> It starts off like we talked about in that opening scene with the boulder. Uh, I just mentioned the date. 
there's a fight with a guy with swords that's really fun. <laughs> Does anything that Indy goes through in this movie feel unbelievable to you? Um, or do you like the way that he overcomes obstacles in this film particularly? Well, all of that feels unbelievable because I've never experienced any of that. But it's not a bad thing. Unbelievable to me in a movie like this means that I'm having fun with the character, that I can go on this adventure with him and not have to worry about him dying because that that's not the point. We're never worried about Indiana Jones passing away. Because by the time we get to a third movie, we're like, Indiana's never going to die. That's not a character trait of his. His character trait lends itself to finding treasure and beating the bad guy in some unique way. So these close calls are less about the thrill of hoping that he gets out of the situation and more about seeing him get out of the situation. If it's as simple as running away from a giant boulder or from rolling under a door that's slowly descending and then grabbing your hat at the last minute. All these things create great set pieces for us to just watch and enjoy. And that's what I like about them. I think that they are grounded in a way that make me, it appeals to me in a way that superhero movies don't usually reach. And there are, there are examples of ones that do, of course, but there is something about watching someone who seemingly could be me. Who, if so, and, and someone who makes smart decisions versus gets lucky all the time. I feel like Indy has a lot of agency in creating the way that things happen for himself. When we see the swordsman in Cairo going all crazy, it's an awesomely fun scene. He's you know going nuts. We're like, okay, what you going to do? And he just, it's one of the best scenes of all time, in my opinion. He pulls out his gun, and he's just like, bam. And he shoots him dead in one shot. It's over. He used the thing at hand. He didn't stop. He didn't think about it. He didn't over-dramatize the moment. And what's even better about that scene to me, Patrick, is that he immediately looks for the next movement to make. He doesn't stop and relish in the moment. It was it was a task at hand. He accomplished it, and he is on to the next part of his progress, right? That, that scene feels so foreign to me compared to everything that I watch these days in modern cinema. It just does, it feels out of place. It feels like there's no zoom-ins. There's no overly focused on tension in that moment. It's crazy. It's crazy, but it's so realistic. Well, I think the reason why it's so realistic is because that scene wasn't scripted that way. Oh. <laughs> Harrison Ford, I think, had been on a long shoot, but the the basic premise is that he was exhausted, and so he improvised the just pulling out the gun and shooting him, and the guy just reacted to it. Spielberg liked it, so he left it in. It's probably the most organic because well. <laughs> it wasn't choreographed. It was strictly spontaneous. But to your point, Harrison Ford as an actor improvised. He was like, look, what can I do to get this over with? I'll just pull up my gun and fire and see what happens. Maybe he thought that it was a throwaway shot and that he'd have to do it again. But that scene wasn't supposed to go that way. But to your point, you're right. He is very innovative. He's very resourceful. I would say that while he is grounded, I don't connect to that as much as I 
connect to the fact that in the more close up moments, I can relate to some of the close calls, like the way in which he's trying to figure out how light affects these arrows blowing or when he's running away, being able to elude the, the natives. But when it comes to like big balls rolling at him or again, rolling under the, the door and getting that, those things are really more theatrical than anything else. Right. And those are, in the caves, those are the actual adventures and scenes. But when he's in reality fighting against humans, I mean, his fist fights are grounded as well. I mean, he gets his ass kicked, to put it bluntly. He gets beat up. He's not the strongest guy in the room. He's not the most agile guy in the room. When Marion's bar is burning down, they gotta go. Because they're getting trampled on by this, like, collapsing, burning building. Right? And these things are very feel very tangible and real like threats to him, in my opinion. Uh, and he has to use more than one skill in order to succeed. He can't just punch his way out of every scenario. He can't shoot his way out of scenario. He can't you know, run his way out of every scenario. Uh, and it's, I love it. I love that aspect of him. And I think just for me, it just, it just, it elevates him in a way that, superheroes can never quite do it for me it's probably partially why i gravitate towards batman as well because even though he's got this great collection of toys that he uses these gadgets he's not superman he's not indestructible ultimately you can break the bat right like he definitely always wins for the most part but there's always a threat that he could be got and so I like that about Indiana Jones as well. So one other quick thought regarding the the close calls. I was recently watching one of the Nerd Writers video essays on why DC action set pieces don't work. And part of what he mentioned was that when you compare it to the MCU, there is a sense of weight. There's a sense of gravity. And so when you have two people, even if they're super powered, throwing each other around, when Iron Man throws Cap into the concrete there is a boom there is a a weight that the audience feels as opposed to just blunt punches that superman and wonder woman are throwing at each other in justice league and i think the same rule can kind of apply here with indiana jones when we can establish that weight when we can establish gravity when we can establish a sense of real worldedness particularly with indiana jones we can relate to that even if we can't relate to the character, we can relate to the fact that he is, when he is punched and he gets knocked down and he's like coughing. Yeah. I felt that way. I've gotten knocked in the stomach and gotten knocked on my butt by my older brother. And I felt that way. I wish that there was a, at that moment, a propeller coming at him to slice him to, to bits. Did not happen, fortunately. And, you know, we moved on, but you're right. Indiana Jones, it's not that he's weak. It's not that he's just not the strongest man. It's the fact that he is resourceful and the fact that he has the ability to be weak and find ways to get out of a situation. He's not attacking anybody. He is trying to get through to something else, and the fights are the thing that are in his way. He's not 
specifically going after or purposely going after people. He's looking to get out of the situation, which is what I think most people do and what a good adventurer who wants to save his own life is doing. You know, it's like I love in that opening scene where he's running towards, I think it's Jacques who has the plane and he's fishing. And I remember thinking, here's Indy yelling at him and he sees the Huvutu running after him. And Jacques is trying to actually get the fish out of the plane or out of the water. And he eventually abandons it. But I'm thinking he's probably been on enough of these adventures that he feels like he has time. The fact that he can have time to fish and the fact that Indy's running towards him with these crazy natives after him. He's like, okay, I've got, I've got a, I got about five or ten seconds. Okay. Okay. I don't have five or ten seconds. I got to go. That tells me that this guy is used to Indiana Jones and the craziness that is his life as an adventurer. Agreed. Absolutely. A hundred percent agreed. And I, and I love that the globe trotting aspect of this and that ties into it. Like he goes by seaplane, he goes by train, he goes by ship, he goes by, you know, big transport plane, he goes by horse. He's like literally all over the map with different transportation styles in this. And also one of the cool things about Raiders that I think it gave us that was used in future films and storytelling is the map scenes and i don't think it gave it to us but with regards to adventure stories i mean i've seen it done in other movies but i love the transitions when you get to see an adventurer moving from one location on a map to another and you see the plane flying with a you know line coming behind it that's always really fun um and and i love the way that raiders uses it well villains in the film, let's talk about them for a second. Belloc represents a pretty fantastic villain for Indy. But like we said, he's more so a counter in a lot of ways in his character traits. Like an opposite version of Indy. What do you like the most about him? And then what do you think about the villains as like the entity of the quote unquote Nazis in this film and what they're trying to do? Well, I think there's a layered aspect of it. Belloc represents a great foil for Indiana Jones. You can define them both as being those that hunt for treasure or those that hunt for things that are valuable. Motives are obviously different. Belloc is resourceful, but it's almost like he's using cheat codes as his resource. And for for him, there's a great line after Indiana rolls down as in, in his bombarded by the Hubutu. And I think Belloc says, once again, there is nothing that you can obtain that I cannot get from you. I'm, I'm butchering the line. It's a great line, and I wish I could remember it. But that line speaks volumes about his nature, the relationship between him and Belloc, that Belloc wants those things, but he'll let other people do the dirty work for him. Which is smart. (laughs) It's smart, but it's also egocentric, egotistical, and it's kind of ignorant because if he had done his research, I feel like he would know the implications of opening the arc and wouldn't have his head explode. So I think Belloc is someone who is equally as smart as Indiana Jones but clearly his motives and what he wants from this 
lead to his demise. But in a lot of ways, he does have those similarities with, with Jones. And he's also human. He is not unbeatable. Um, we actually see a weakness in him in that he succumbs to some of Marianne's charms. And at one point, he's protecting her, uh, and Tote comes in. And I like Tote as a villain, too. And I think that's part of the strength of Raiders, is that we get different types of villains. It's not all resting on one that has to carry all these traits. You've got Belloc, who is the, you know, the other adventurer that's sort of racing against Jones. That is the guy that Jones, you know, is always going to be competing with. And then you have Tote, who is more of the, like, really creepy, evil, like, almost like you would say the assassin in a sense, right? That is hunting someone down for the bad guy entity that is calling all the shots. I look at Tote, and I think he has some of my favorite lines and some of my favorite moments. When he walks into Marion's bar, just all cool and cavalier with his entourage, and She's like, bars closed, mister. And he goes, we are not thirsty. <laughs> the way he delivers his lines just feels so sinister, like he's something out of a comic book. And then there's that scene where he comes in and he grabs what we think is a weapon. And it turns out to be a mobile coat rack thing. I, I watch him and I think that he personifies the mustache twirling bad guy but spielberg creates him in a way where he's not hokey where he's not like i I didn't mind seeing him die but he's also very entertaining on screen and he's not the central focus he's not the villain of the of the movie belloc is kind of the the front man of that but just like indy belloc's got people that are helping him out too Granted, he's probably either paying them or making them, but he, again, he represents that opposite of Indy, where they both come from similar places, they both have similar kinds of resources, but the way in which they use them, uh, one leads to demise, whereas the other leads to benefit. Well, and ultimately, they're all working essentially for Hitler, which is fascinating because he's never shown. He's always the person the villain off behind the curtain that's pulling the strings and all of these people are trying to serve and do their best to you know get this object for the nazis and they all have different rules to play within that that uh that attempt right and so it's just a great balance of the villain in tote the the competitor in Belloc, and then the fodder of just generic Nazis that he has to go through so that you can get some people to, you know, mow through as you're fighting your way towards this thing, because that's fun for an audience to see. And I just think it's really well crafted Mm -hmm. uh, in that regard. And I don't need a villain. Like, I don't need a Thanos to be the one thing that Indiana Jones is going up against, because that's really not what Indiana Jones and adventure stories like this are all about. He's not trying to save the world from an amazing threat in that sense, right? And ultimately, he does have to make that choice with the Ark, kind of. He has to decide Marion's life is more important, and he realizes, but he's never, like, trying to prevent world destruction, necessarily. 
a big part of it is still wanting to get the Ark back because it's an artifact, not because he thinks that the Nazis are just going to use it to ruin the Earth because he doesn't necessarily believe in that. And so it's a completely different thing than we're used to seeing in the last you know 10 to 20 years that's really blown up here in cinema. And so I think it's really refreshing to go back and experience it again. One of the things you, you mentioned reminded me of why we liked Spider-Man Homecoming. It was a neighborhood fight. It was a neighborhood battle. We weren't getting the, oh my gosh, aliens are going to destroy the Earth and they're going to eventually destroy the universe. You don't have these epic threats that as a human being we can't really get behind. Indiana Jones represents that. His motive impacts other things, but it doesn't change his motive. He ultimately wants to get the Ark back, and if as a side kind of benefit, he also saves the world, great. But in all three of these movies, we never see him say, you know what, this needs to be returned because the world needs saving. Nope. He's saying, I think his line, it belongs in a museum, would be applicable for any of his adventures. (laughs) What I'm seeking belongs in a museum. And that may be selfish in and of itself, but it's definitely a representation of the fact that he's not thinking about global or universal types of conflict and threat. He's thinking about what is it that I'm going after? What do I need to do to get it? And how do I survive? And that's okay with me. That's the mark of a good adventure story. Absolutely agree. Well, do you have anything else that you want to touch on specifically before our connecting points? Let me just throw some love at the practical effects in this movie and in all three of them. There are, so, there are so many great set pieces that rely on practical effects. The car chases, the way in which Indiana bends the grill because he's planning on eventually getting the guy who's driving the truck out to, and, and the guy grabs the grill and then ends up, you know, getting run over by the Jeep because the grill is broken. Things like that. The way that we don't have a lot of CG or any CG for that matter, I don't think. I I like that that's a common trait in all three of these. When we revisit Doom and then Crusade, I'll obviously have to reevaluate. But that's one thing that has stood stood out to me as being what makes this movie stand the test of time is the fact that those practical effects don't age necessarily. We're not seeing Indy behind a green screen or in front of a green screen, we see these fires that are happening and they're really fires. They're not miniatures or they're not done through computers. They might be miniatures, but I love the fact that a lot of what is in these movies is done with practical effects. And you don't have to do a lot because it's grounded in that it's very light supernatural elements you know, there's not a ton of like crazy CGI type stuff that has to be done. It can be done practically uh, because of the way that the film is what the story is trying to tell with this adventure seeking type of uh, hunt. Well, connecting points. Do you have like five of those, too? <laughs> Fortunately, I just have the one. <laughs> All right. Well, what is your one? This goes back to my one more takeaway of um which one was it? It was four, but I narrowed it down to one. (laughs) 
I don't even remember which one you chose. It was adventure. No, no, it was excitement. Excitement. Yeah. And the scene that stands out to me is that conversation that Brody and Indy have in his home when Brody says, you're going. And he goes, you got it, Marcus. And you can see the elation on his face, how excited he is. And he's he's like a little schoolboy, to quote a line from from Last Crusade. But he's so excited about getting a chance to find what at this point is probably the ultimate artifact. And I think this scene helps get me really connected to Indy as someone who wants to go on this adventure and find what it is that he's looking for and to be able to experience all of the stuff that he's going to experience that was set up early on in that opening scene. But to see how excited he gets, to see how he already starts packing because he's leaving, you know, in less than 24 hours, seeing what he packs, he he puts his whip in there, he puts his hat, and then he says, I'm always careful, and he throws his gun in there. All those things just help set up the fact that he knows what he's doing, he's ready for his adventure, he's excited about it, and as an audience... I'm there with him. Like I'm ready to just jump in that suitcase and say, take me with you, Indy. Fortunately, I don't have to do that because we're about to go with him. But that scene really helps emotionally set up the excitement that both he as a character and I as an audience member are feeling in that moment to carry us through to the end of the movie. That's awesome. I completely love that. And you're right. I mean, it is, I think his energy and his boyish happiness about enjoying what he does is infectious. And it's something that you love to see in your heroes. And it helps. It helps us to always want to see him win because he's out there living his best life and having fun (laughs) trying to do so. He's not there because he feels like he has to be. He's there because he wants to be. And it's great. Well, mine is more of a connecting act (laughs) than a connecting point. Sure. Of course it is. No, not of course it is. Don't of course it is me. My connecting movie is my connecting trilogy is the. So from the opening scene (laughs) till about the melty face part is my connecting point. No, (laughs) it's sort of a thread that happens and really was two main scenes and I just need to tie them together and call it an act. So it starts when Indy is saying goodbye to Salah. And this really stuck out to me this time around, like I mentioned to you earlier, about his friendships and how they affected him throughout. It's not just Indiana Jones. Like Without these different relationships in his life, he doesn't achieve his goal. And when he's saying goodbye to Salah, it's really sweet. And it's just a, a great confirmation of that. He goes to handshake Salah and Salah pulls him in for a hug instead. It's a really sweet moment. He says, I am already missing you. And Indy says, you're my good friend. I love it, man. I love that small moment in this movie for them to reflect on what they've just been through and give us a sense of how much that they care about each other. And then right after that is a 
really sweet, subtle, heartwarming moment between Marianne and Salah. And she comes over and she gives him this farewell kiss on the cheek in gratitude for all of his help. In fact, she gives him three kisses. And it's a very culturally appropriate thing. She says, Salah, that is for fire. That is for your children. And this is for you. Thank you. It's just really great. And I, and I love his response to this as well. Because he was obviously not expecting it. He slowly breaks into this big, radiant smile. And he starts singing this song, which I looked up. It's called A British Tar. And much to the amusement of several workers nearby, actually, um, one of them runs up to him and gives him this big manly kiss as he continues to sing. It's just, it's such a boisterous moment of celebration and genuine, heartfelt care for each other between those three characters that it really resonated with me. And I thought it fit perfectly in the movie after so much of chasing and fighting and all of these things. It's just a, a quick slowdown that we get. And I like that. And that transitions onto uh, Captain Katanga's ship that they're taking with uh, this little bit between Marion and Indy. It's the only real romance we get in the film, right? And it's her trying to treat his wounds, him being a big baby, which is a running theme, and her, as always, being a klutz, smacking him in the face with a mirror. And she asks him where it hurts, and he's like, where doesn't it hurt, right? And that leads to this adorable moment that I feel like is again very relatable with regards to what real flirtatious relationships are like and it's like oh well you could kiss here and and here and here like who among us hasn't done that with a significant other and it looks like we're headed for this moment of deep intimacy between the two of them and he falls asleep and i gotta say man it's completely fair after the day that he has just had and i love that because in a movie in 2019 i believe they would have had sex because that's what they would do, right? To tell us that they are in love or something. And we didn't need that. And I think it served the characters both perfectly for who we had had them built up to so far. And maybe my favorite moment comes after these two. And so it's just this great string of things going on. The Nazis come up to Captain Katanga's ship and they pull him over, right? And they are looking for Indy. And Katanga claims to have killed Indiana Jones and he is trying to keep Marion safe as well. And it's just this great scene where more friends are helping Indy and you really get a sense of how much people respect him. Katanga is a pirate, essentially. Like that's what people consider him and his crew to be. A good looking right? pirate, by the way. He is, man. He is a suave mofo. But in the six or seven minutes that we get them, even though they look like kind of rough guys, we see how decent they are at their core. He also gives Marion and Indy his personal cabin for the trip. He teases Indy in these fun little friendly conversations. He gives Marion a nightgown, a really beautiful one, to make the journey better for her. And when that U-boat shows up and he is trying to protect them, it is a very dangerous situation. He could have played it safe. He could have turned them over, but he lies. And honestly, man, I mean, we have to believe that Dietrich would have torpedoed that ship if he believed for a second that Katanga was trying to protect Indiana Jones, right? If he was on board. But not one of the crew rats them out. 
they all stand up and back their captain on behalf of Indy. And after the Germans depart with Mary and Katanga tries to find Indy to see if he's safe. And it's great because we get right back into that adventure where we see that he has swam his way over. He's standing on the sub. And there it is, man. It's so fantastic. It's all worked out essentially for the best as it could. And we see Katanga and the crew hooping and hollering and cheering and giving a salute. And you realize like, Indy means so much to all of these people in the world that he interacts with. That he is so much more than just a person who finds cool treasures. And to me, that is the absolute like depth of what makes me love this character so much is because he's more. He's not just that guy that accomplishes that task. He means something to people. And this scene, these scenes, I think, show that perfectly. Absolutely. And by finishing it off where they see him on the U-boat and the soundtrack, the theme comes in. He's as surprised as they are that he's made it and that he's got that kind of love. And I, I don't know if he smiles. I'd like to think that he does. But he seems to not relish it, but he seems to let that be an energy boost for him as he goes on the next step of, of this adventure to uh, to do what he's got to do. And of course, it leads into another great sequence of him stealing a uniform and all this other stuff. And it's just it's fantastic. So great connecting chapter, connecting act, connecting whatever we're going to call that at this point. <laughs> I do my best. Sorry. You do your best. I try. It's good. It's a it, it's great. Well, that wraps up part one of our 200th episode celebration. Be sure to keep your podcatchers catching and stay tuned for our next installment just a day away. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.